Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Though many of us might not know it, thanks to pensions auto-enrolment, the average Brit is more invested in the stock market than at any point in our history. But how many of us are taking advantage of our ownership of stocks and shares to influence the way that corporations behave? And how can we get the seemingly all-powerful fund managers to invest our money in a way that aligns with our values? That's the challenge Merrin Somerset Webb sets out to answer in her excellent new book, Share Power, How Ordinary People Can Change the Way Capitalism Works and Make Money Too. It's not only a colourful, vividly written guide to the workings of corporate finance, but a manifesto about where capitalism has gone wrong and how we, the people, can put it back on track. Merrin, thank you very much for appearing on the CapEx podcast, not least because we're recording it on the day of a tube strike in London, so you battled to be here with us. Your book, Share Power. Um, now, to look at it on the front, you might be forgiven for thinking this was a bit of a kind of lefty screed against the iniquities of capitalism. But your, your thesis is, is quite different from that. I mean, it's basically that capitalism is great, but it's not as transparent as we would like it to be. And, you know, people are not exercising their, their voice as much as it be. So what do you see as the kind of the root of the problem that you're exploring in this book? Well, the first thing to say is it's not a lefty screed. It's definitely not. It's I don't think we'd have not. you on the podcast if you um, were. What it is, is it, it's a plea for us to use the power that we already have to make capitalism what it should be. You know, I'm a great believer in capitalism, but I also say there's no, there's no point in believing or not believing in capitalism. It simply is. This is a system that works for humans. This is the way that we are. You know, we're automatically, we're accumulators, we're improvers, uh, we're innovators, we're traders, we're barterers. That's what we are. Capitalism is an ape to the human, uh, you know, way of being. It, so there's no point in believing in it, not believing in it, approving of it, not approving of it. It's the way we are. So given that we have it, we need to work out how to use it best and how to make sure that everyone has some agency within it. And that's the core of what I'm trying to write about here, agency. So we have a phenomenal system on the go. Particularly in the UK, we have a shareholder democracy, or we should have a shareholder democracy, whereby everybody actually does have a stake in the corporate capitalist world. So at the moment in the UK, if you're in work, and most people are, uh, 75% of people in work have an auto-enrolment pension. And if you have an auto-enrollment pension, you own equities. You don't necessarily know that you do, but you own shares. You own shares in the big companies that you know the names of and that you see all around you. 
And now an awful lot of people spend a lot of time complaining about the way big companies behave. You know, they feel themselves to be disengaged from the corporate world. There's us and then there's them, the big companies, the bad companies behaving horribly. And we don't have any say however they behave and that's just wrong. Now that's not true. We own them. We should have a say over, they over how they behave. Every share comes with a vote and every vote can be used to encourage a company to behave how you want them to behave. Mm -hmm. Now, this book is not about how companies should behave. That's none of my business. Well, actually, it's my business because I'm a shareholder too. Um, but it's about how you can get the choices that you should have. Okay. And that was a very long answer to a short question. I'm sorry. Answer, oh, answer no, I like, well, I like long answers. <laughs> like, I mean, do you think, how has this evolved to the state we're in now, you, you sketch out at the beginning of the book, right from the beginning, from the, the 14th century yeah. as much. We had a, a French company that made flour, yeah. um, which lasted about 600 years or something They're ridiculous. still knocking around. There's a sort of hydro plant in one of the, right. the French uh, energy companies. But the, the big changes in, in the UK and the West is over the last sort of 30, 40 odd years. So yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, what, what, what the book talks about at the beginning is this sort of key innovation in the world, which is the, the invention of the uh, limited liability company, which, which means that people were able to put large amounts of capital at risk without having their uh, personal finances destroyed as a result, and meant that investors from all sorts of different places could come together to pool their capital for risky enterprises. So that's how, how the company started. And the company as, a, as a, a, a unit of growth and innovation is an extraordinary thing. Now, over time, that's evolved and we've had listed companies, we have stock markets where anyone can trade, buy and sell little bits of companies all the time. But of course, historically, only the rich have owned those shares that you can trade. So in the, say, let's go back to the 50s, 60s, around 3% of the UK population owned shares. They owned a lot of shares, but only a tiny percentage of the population owned them. These people, they owned them directly, so they had share certificates. They knew what companies they owned. They knew what those companies did. They were engaged with those companies. And as the decades went on, say 60s, 70s, early 80s, you still had a direct connection to the company. And you had, uh, you know, you could go to the AGMs, you could get the annual reports. The AGMs were much jollier affairs than they are now, the annual general meetings. Every company has an annual general meeting every year. Shareholders can go, they can shout, they can yell, they can ask questions. Uh, but mostly, of course, people go for the biscuits because there's usually biscuits at AGMs. Um, it's a good reason. Yeah, it's a very good reason. Some have lunches, right? Even now you can go to some AGMs to get lunch. Um, sorry, distracted by the idea of lunch. It's lunchtime, by the way. It's not just cheap strike day. It's also lunchtime. Um, now, as time went by, more and more people began to own shares, right? And so we get a bigger shareholder democracy. Margaret Thatcher, as you know, was very keen on this. She wanted everyone to hold shares where so everyone felt that they had a stake in the UK economy. Didn't quite work when she did it. The idea was right, but people didn't end up with proper portfolios. It didn't really engage, and most people sold the shares in the end. So it didn't end up the kind of shareholder that she wanted. Yeah. Now, as I said earlier, people do have shares in the main because they have pensions, they have ISAs, they hold shares, etc. But they hold them with a the middleman. So if you, if you know the name of the company that you hold, you still probably hold it on a platform, which while you're the beneficial owner, the technical owner is a platform. So Hargreaves Lansdowne or Interactive Investor, something like that. So you don't directly hold those shares. And that means that all the technical rights of a shareholder, the right to vote, the right to go to the AGM, um, the right to get the annual report, etc., they rest with the platform. So there's an admin to do if you want to use your power as a shareholder. And, you know, we yeah. hate admin. We all hate admin so much. Yeah, you and say you do anything to avoid filling out a form, which I can hugely sympathise with. Yeah. Anything. The Scottish census forms have just arrived and I'm looking at it thinking, I don't want to 
am I ever going to do that? How big is the fine? Uh, you know, I'm more, a lot of people are like that. We hate to fill out forms. And now some of the platforms making it easier for us, you know, Interactive Investor is, is, stands out here, a company where, where are giving you back your power. So it's opt out rather than opt in to take back your power as a shareholder. And that's great. Um, the other platforms you still have to sign up. In the old days, you actually had to pay to use your vote to get a proxy vote. So you can do it, but it's admin heavy. It's not as easy as it should be. But that's just the beginning of the problem. Because the majority of us, we don't own shares individually. We don't know that we own JLBB, Marks and Spencers, uh, you know, Meta, whatever it is, because we hold them inside a fund. So our money is managed by a fund manager inside a wrapper of some kind, be it an investment trust, an open-end or a closed-end fund. There are lots of different types. But the core thing is that you own units or shares in a wider collective vehicle. Mm -hmm. And the fund manager who runs that money does all the voting. He has all the rights of ownership. Even though you are the owner, he or she has the rights of ownership and they vote on your behalf. You get no say. Yeah, there's some extraordinary stats in your book. I think you say that 90% of, um, I think it's S&P 500 maybe, companies are owned by three or are managed by three companies. Well, so um, Vanguard, State there Street are and three, BlackRock. There are three huge American companies, Vanguard, State Street and BlackRock, and they will effectively have holdings in pretty much every large company in the world, uh, maybe every small company as well, because they they manage just vast amounts of money. BlackRock just passed a 10 trillion mark at the end of last year, possibly the beginning of this year, but it must be the end of last year. Um, and of course, markets are going down, so everyone's holding it going down slightly recently. But these are huge companies, and they have stakes in, in every company you can think of. And because of the way voting structures work, they effectively, between them, will have control controlling stakes in the majority of companies, huge influence. So if, for example, Larry Fink, who is the CEO of BlackRock, announces that all companies should behave in a certain way or that all the fund managers who work for BlackRock are going to vote in a certain way, then it can hugely change the way that companies behave. Now, the question is, are our views as individual shareholders aligned with the views of, for example, Larry Fink? Is he asking people to vote in the way that we would like him to vote. And that really matters. You know, there is a view that fund managers, big fund management companies, we've effectively delegated our votes to them. They have apparently our interests at heart and uh, they have massive ESG overlays, environmental, social and government overlays on top of their investing. They're going to do stuff right. We should leave them to it. But that's not very democratic. And it also takes away our agency. And there are lots of things that I do agree with Larry Fincon, there's also quite a few things that I don't agree with Larry Fincon, and I would like the ability to use my votes. Mm -hmm. I just want to talk about the actual kind of logistics of what you're talking about. So excuse my kind of corporate ignorance here, but how would the voting process work? Let's say all of us who have these shares would, would vote. Is it a simple majority? Do you need certain thresholds? Does it depend on which company we're talking about? Or is there a kind of general way of doing things when uh, it comes well, to an AGM? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I said, it is, it's what I'm talking about is quite complicated. So the first bit where if you actually own shares and you know which company it is and you can use your vote, that's relatively straightforward. You own the vote, right? But the idea of getting fund managers who have collective investments to give us our say is more complicated. Uh, you know, if, if say I own five of the units in the fund and somebody else owns 500 units in the fund and somebody else owns 5,000 and that fund also owns shares in 130 companies, you know, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of votes included in this wrapper. 
How are they going to be done? How's the fund manager going to come to you and say, what is it you want to do? How does this work? So I think initially it works in a, in a much more simple way. I mean, we can start by looking at, uh, okay, let's start with Russia, right? Why not? Yeah. Why not? Now, a lot of people know they own shares or have owned shares in Russian companies. So you could own, for example, I mean, I've long owned shares. Maybe I should have, maybe I shouldn't have. Turns out I definitely shouldn't have owned shares in something called the uh, J.P. Morgan Russian Securities Investment Trust. I know I own Russian shares and I know that I've lost a lot of money on them. But as it turns out, pretty much everyone in the UK probably owns some Russian shares. Because the majority of us, our money is invested in passive funds, which are, by the way, mainly run by the companies I mentioned earlier, Straight, State Street, Vanguard and BlackRock, which means that they will own tiny parts of companies everywhere that track global indices. And the Russian market makes up, depending on which index you use, somewhere between 0.3 and 0.4% of the world equity market. If you have an auto-enrollment pension in the UK, you probably own a little bit of Russia. And that's probably going to come as a surprise to you. So would you have liked it if when you first invested, it was a tick box. You want to own Russia? You want to own oil? You want to own mining? You want to own defense? We just want to own renewable energy. You just want to own this, you just want to own that. And then other boxes, how do you feel about company remuneration? How do you feel about incentive packages for CEOs? How do you feel about the guy who runs X, Y, or Z company earning uh, $20, $30 million a year and transforming his family fortunes for many generations as a result of running a company someone, has, someone else set up for five years? How do you feel about these things in a generalized way, right? That's the first step for companies to take on board how people feel. And it may be that you would say, well, actually, I don't really want any Russia. And it may be that two years ago, you would have said, oh, I don't really want any oil. Uh, today, you might go, actually, well, I would quite like to have more. I've changed my mind about ESG. So those options should be available to us all the time. And there are companies that are beginning to do this. Um, quite a few of the pension companies now have websites where you can look and you can see exactly what you're invested in, which is a great first step, right? If you, if you have a pension and you don't necessarily understand how the equity market works and you don't know that you have a stake in all these companies, and a letter from your pension company says, you know, by the way, by the way, go onto our website and have a look, see what you own. See what you own. That's mm -hmm. the first step. And there are other companies that are beginning to do things in a much more interesting way. So there, um, there's a, a nice little company in the UK called Tumalo, which works with a pension fund managers to set up uh, sites where you can go and you can see all the companies that are held inside the portfolio. And you can also see what votes are coming up. So you can see if uh, you know, there are a few classics that the company talks about a lot, things like uh, uh, McDonald's and uh, antibiotics and how they use them or don't use them or this kind of thing, uh, pay for pay for people at the top, etc. You can look on the site and you can go, okay, well, in my portfolio uh, that I am, there is some of this company and I can see there's a vote coming up in this company and the fund manager is explaining to me why they are going to vote, how they're going to vote, or why they would vote, how they would vote. And the company is explaining why they would like people to vote in this way. And I can choose. And I can let the fund manager know how I would vote. Now, that's not binding. It's not binding. But it's a great step forward into letting the pension fund manager know what you actually think. And one day, one day, we'll get to the point, I hope, where what you want done with your part of that fund, however tiny, becomes binding. So the fund manager has to split his vote. You know, I've got lots and lots of clients. Some of them want this, some of them want that, some of them want this. So I have to vote some this way and some that way and some this way. So he begins to lose his agency and that agency returns to you. Do you think that, and this is a fairly fundamental question about the book, actually, yeah. that there's a risk that 
members of the public are swayed by things that might be fashionable at the time that but are actually bad for their own long-term returns or for the health of the companies that they're yes. investing in. I mean, absolutely. That risk exists just like it does with general elections, right? People vote for the wrong thing. Um, but luckily, you normally get another go, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that this is the... The question I get asked about the book all the time is exactly that. Aren't people too stupid? Aren't they too stupid to be able to do this? They're I, not I gonna understand. I'm not saying they're it. stupid, but I think people are, are want to follow the crowd. And I that's think that regardless um, of how intelligent they are. See, I think that that's much more of a danger when people don't have this kind of agency. So for example, over the last five, six years, the ESG thing has been huge. Yeah. And so everyone has not wanted to invest in fossil fuels or in uh, defence, for example, all these things that, that now we see are so vitally important. And we have starved some areas of capital over the last 10 years that we really should not have starved of capital. You know, we should not have got ourselves into the situation, but here we are. Now, one of the reasons I suspect that has been able to happen is because it's been very unspecific. So people go to invest and they take a general ESG box and if you've ticked an ESG box, you're going to end up in something that probably excludes energy companies because energy companies are considered to be, you know, dirty and a bit the enemy. Now, if this was much more specific and you were invested in energy companies and you were asked more specific questions, like, uh, you know, if, if you do this, it will affect your dividends in this way. If you do this, it will affect the long term future of this company in this way. I suspect that we might make different decisions. I don't know, by the way. I don't know. But I suspect we might, if we were able to look on a company-to-company -company basis, instead of, of, of an overview of, oh, this is terrible, if we had a more specific view of if this happens, then this will happen, and if this happens, then this will happen, uh, we might take a more nuanced view than we do at the moment, because we yeah. can see how the way every company behaves affects the future of that company and hence our futures. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, we, we've run some pieces on CapEx really tearing ESG apart as as you mentioned it almost seems more to be about what you exclude than what you include a lot of the 
the stocks are things that are not particularly like Microsoft coming mm. up in mm. ESG stocks. And I don't have any particular problem with Microsoft. But when I think of companies that are do-gooders, I don't think of Microsoft or any or tech companies necessarily. I mean, do you think it's going to carry on being the kind of light motif of kind of contemporary investing or people realise that it's actually become a bit too broad and people are just gaming it? Oh, I think it'll just get broader. I mean, oh. you know, I love ESG, right? And, and you do as well. There's absolutely nobody who doesn't want a company to be run in a way that is not harmful to the environment, that um, that cares about the community. That's the S bit, right? Right. And, that, and is well run. And yes. is well run. Yeah. Who could possibly say no to that? And how could you find a good long-term investment that didn't somehow incorporate all those things, right? Yeah. So it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So today, for example, there is a conversation about whether defense stocks should be classified as ESG stocks. Now, previously, that would have been an unmentionable, unmentionable. And defense stocks are quite obviously excluded from any kind of ESG portfolio. But hey, now we're looking around and going, well, actually, I mean, can I need these things? And, uh, and actually, they bring good too, right? Bad and good. This is, this is not simple. This is complicated. This is nuanced. And without defense stocks. Yeah, these are democratic bad things, missiles. Yeah, that, bad yeah. things happen to society. Yeah. Uh, so suddenly you can shift those into ESG. And I would say, once you've done that, well, hang on, that's an excellent argument for putting fossil fuel companies into ESG. If you're thinking about the S, are we thinking about the S? We're thinking about the S, right? We're thinking about people's energy bills. We're thinking about our economy. We're thinking about our living standards. What drives economies? Cheap, plentiful energy. That's what drives economies. And if economies are growing, people's living standards are improving, people's incomes are improving, if energy prices are very high, very, very high, all that goes into reverse. So if you were going to argue about all these things, could you really exclude fossil fuel companies from an ESG portfolio? I mean, you can agree or disagree with that. My point is just that you can make this incredibly wide and broad. I'd be hard pushed to find a single company that you couldn't kind of lever into one of those categories. Maybe tobacco, I'm pretty sure I couldn't leave one of those into, a, into one of those categories, but I bet somebody else could. I bet yeah. they could find a way. So does ESG get narrower and narrower? Or does it just get wider and wider until in the same way that if, if something is everything, it's also nothing? Yeah. I think that's where we're going. One thing I was interested in um, that you write about is that the actual number of listed companies has fallen quite sharply. What do you think is behind that? And does it kind of drive, is it a force that's driving against the kind of change you want to see or not? Well, it's been a problem for years, you know, if we're going to have a vibrant shareholder democracy and everyone is able to share in that shareholder democracy, we need a lot of companies. And we need those, I mean, we've got a lot of companies, yeah. but I mean, you need, need to be able to vote with your feet companies. in a way. We need a lot of yeah. listed companies. We need companies that we can all buy and sell shares in and companies that we can engage with. So we want companies to be listed. But of course, we also live in a world of, of, of very enthusiastic regulation. And over time, our stock markets have become increasingly regulated and the burden, the regulatory burden on companies has become huge. Add to that the transparency of being listed. I mean, you and I would say quite rightly that transparency is a fabulous thing and the more of it, the better. But it's tough if you're particularly if you're a small company. So there's that. And there's also the fact that during our great monetary experiment of the last couple of decades, um, 
private equity has grown incredibly fast. Money has been very cheap. It's been very easy to raise money off the stock market. Uh, and so companies have been able to come to market much, much later, if at all. And this is a problem because the great thing about a, a shareholder democracy and about shareholder capitalism has always been if people need money, they have to come to the public markets to get it. And then we can all A, see what's going on and B, participate in it. So a fall off in the number of listed companies is a problem. There is good news though. And the good news is that we have seen a rise in the number of um, IPOs, uh, initial public offerings over the last couple of years. And we also saw in the middle of the great crisis at the beginning of the pandemic, when the economies began to shut down and the market collapsed and a lot of companies realized they were going to need money to keep them going, a lot of companies came to market, uh, came to secondary offerings. Eh? They're already listed and they go back to shareholders that they have already and they say, you know, we're in a bit of a bind here, give us some more money. And that was a wonderful time for stock markets because it showed what they're all about. It showed that this is a great place to raise money and a great place to raise permanent capital. You don't ever give it back, right? Um, you can keep that money inside the company. No debt. Debt is a terrible thing in a crisis. You don't want debt. You want equity. Um, so we saw this, this, this relationship rebuild between listed companies and their shareholders, and in particular between uh, listed companies and retail shareholders, ordinary shareholders, you and me, right, came back to the market in droves in 2020, 2021, which was exciting because what we need is we need listed companies and we need engaged investors and then everything comes together. So I'm hugely optimistic now about the future for stock markets. And you mentioned the crisis there. That's had some interesting um, ramifications in terms of the number of people who are investing and also the engagement between um, companies and their shareholders in terms of things like virtual ATMs. I mean, possibly the most striking example of the former was the, the GameStop um, rush. I mean, do you think that that COVID-driven uptake in investing, and you compare it to sort of, um, the kind of video gaming, I think, um, do you think that's here to stay or is going has it already started to descend again? Yeah, I think it will start to descend again. And that's, you know, the gamification of stock markets is, is what people call it. And it has been quite exciting to see people recognise what stock markets do, recognise how they work, and also recognise that retail investors um, banded together can make a difference. You know, banding together to um, play around with hedge funds actually on the stock market is different to banding together to vote and, and cause change inside corporate strategies. But nonetheless, it was a period that showed that just because you're a small investor and uh, the majority of the stock market is controlled by the very big investors doesn't mean you don't have power. And in particular, at the moment, thanks to social media, etc., you have reputational power. Uh, so that matters too. So will it fall off again? Yes, of course it will. You know, people don't have the spare time and they're also not going to have the spare money. And one of the things about 2020 and 2021 was the amount of spare money an awful lot of people had in their pockets. So you've got people not working uh, and people with spare cash. People who can't go out, people who can't go to nightclubs, people who can't play sport, uh, people who can't bet on sport because there wasn't sport for a long time. What did they do instead? They bet on the stock market and they play around with it. Some people made a lot of money, some people lost a lot of money. And going forward, that time and that spare cash won't exist, but the knowledge will continue to exist. Mm, I mean, that, you talk that knowledge. I mean, knowledge is really at the core of this book. It's that contrary to what some people think, that only a tiny minority of people have all the stocks, actually something like what well, tens of millions of us have a stake in this, but we, we simply, we have this sort of veil of ignorance. I mean, what do you think is the best way in a mass fashion to sort of educate people, make them aware of the power that they do have? Go read my book. 
other than reading your book, obviously. Oh, okay, read it twice. Okay. Um, the best way, the responsibility for this lies, of course it lies with us. I mean, we're responsible for our own financial futures and we should be aware of what we have and we should be aware of, of, of our pensions and how they work. But of course, that's difficult to do. I take you back to admin and lethargy. Um, this lies with the pension fund managers to a large degree and with the government persuading or forcing the pension fund, anti-regulation as I am, uh, forcing pension fund managers to go out there and educate people about what they have. You know, I said earlier, there are quite a few pension funds or pension fund managers that are already on this have websites that are incredibly intuitive and interesting and explain to you exactly what you've got. But the majority of people, what do they get every year? A couple of fairly incomprehensible pieces of paper um, that they chuck straight in the bin with a, a number on it, you know, your pension is now worth. I got one the other day. I've got several different pensions. You know, I'm old, I've worked in lots of different places and I got I got one from my pension, uh, uh, Aviva, name and shame Aviva. And it said your... Um, your pension is worth, I think it was 8,700 and something pounds. Um, on your retirement, your pension will be worth 8,200 and something pounds. Less, right? Less when I retire, when I'm old, I'm not that old. Um, you know, and there was no sort of real explanation of what this meant or what they were talking about. or uh, And it turns out, of course, it's to do with, that, with that in, inflation and real returns, etc. Um, but you'd have to understand quite a lot about finance and get to the end of all the bits of paper to have the faintest idea what they were talking about. And also in there, of course, there is no explanation of of how you are invested there you know you're in our something 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 fund balance growth blah blah whatever but no list of and that this is what that means and this is the companies you're invested in and this is how it works if you want to hear more about it here's a website address here's your login go here learn about the companies learn about what we're doing learn about how we vote learn about how all this affects your future have a say you know it's down to the pension fund managers to do that do you think, and you do, again, you mentioned this towards the end of the book, that actually teaching people when they're quite young about these concepts would also be helpful in the longer term? I mean, we'd, again, we've talked quite a lot on our site about um, financial education and how it should be a much more kind of core part of, of the curriculum. Mm, yeah, I'm a bit anti-personal finance education, to be honest. Did I write that in the book? Mm. Um, I'm, I'm very pro-learning uh, a little bit about economics. You say you like economics. some elements of it. But yeah, not, and yeah. I'm very interested in people knowing a little bit about stock markets and companies, etc. I'm, I'm not convinced. In fact, I'm very unconvinced about teaching people about things like mortgages and that's everything when they're young because no one remembers it. No one remembers that stuff. I mean, think back to what you learned at school that you knew at the time was not relevant to you on the day. Can you remember anything at all from your chemistry at O-level? GCSE, probably in your case. Um, A little, but nothing. Basically nothing. Nothing. And could you remember any of it when you were 21? Of course you couldn't. So now imagine, here you are, you're 14 or 15. Maybe it's the kind of thing they teach you after you finish your exam. You're staring out the window, it's sunny. Some guy at the front is wibbling away about fixed mortgages and variable mortgage rates. There is no way you will remember that when you're whatever age you are, when you finally get to buy a house, 55 or something in the UK. You're not going to remember that stuff. So when it comes to most personal finance education, just-in-time education is better. Okay. Like you, just before you get a mortgage, you get to watch a 45-minute video explaining what a mortgage is, that kind of thing. That's much more effective. Now, with... This kind of thing, it would be wonderful if it was the kind of thing that people learnt in a kind of general studies course at school. So they had some vague idea how economies work, some vague idea what interest rates are, what inflation is, um, what a stock market is and how a company works. These are much bigger macro concepts. They're actually you know, quite interesting. I think most, most young people would be really engaged by this. And then it would also be wonderful 
if when you order enrollment pension set up for you, which it is pretty much as soon as you start work, you get that just-in-time education I was just talking about. You get to watch a half-hour video that explains to you that every penny that goes into this pension, particularly when you're young, goes directly into the shares of companies and probably of companies that you've heard of and that you know, and in many cases that you really disapprove of. And lets you know how you can make your view known. Okay. And above all, we should reiterate the best form of financial education is reading uh, Merrin's book. Uh, Merrin, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was hugely illuminating. As I said the last time uh, on this podcast, I only get on people whose books I enjoyed, and this is great. Uh, so, yeah, if you'd like to know more about how to become a more active shareholder, do get a copy. Um, thank you very much. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.